Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend and say positive, glowing things about us on Twitter and Facebook and in real actual face-to-face conversations insofar as you have many of those in this time of the coronavirus. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, do please do us the favor of pausing your recording and go and give us a five-star rating and review. Um, Follow us on Twitter at at ClergyLay and join our Facebook discussion group. I'm Kirk Haberman, a church musician, and this is my brother, Chris, a priest. Hey, Chris, I got a story for you about five-star reviews and our dear mother let's hear it yes so she followed our instructions this past week and And she she uh she paused all all the way to giving us five (laughs) stars or did she give us less i don't think she gave us five stars are you serious (laughs) i think she okay so she asked she asked uh kirk i i i listened and um i paused and i want to give you five stars how do i do that and i'm like what platform are you listening on she said the way she explained it, I realized she was on her iPhone, in fact, listening to Apple Podcasts, the podcast app. And I'm like, oh, this is super easy. So I took two screenshots within the Apple Podcast with like arrows about scrolling down and then circling the five stars. And I I don't think she was able to accomplish it. (laughs) So mother, next time you're hanging out with Christopher, he will show you how to give a five-star review. So it's not that she gave us fewer than five. She just <laughs> yeah, made I the was, effort and didn't get to I was five. creating suspense. I got you. Right. I mean, well, yes. that's good. That's, that's storytelling <laughs> one-on-one. <laughs> How are you, Christopher? Kirk, I'm doing well. Uh, it's my baby's birthday on Sunday. She's going to be so 11. Excited. My baby. I'm sorry. Did I say 11? 10. She's going to be 10. It does not seem like uh, – well, in some ways – I can't believe she's 10. In some ways, it seems like it's been six lifetimes that she's been alive. So, Right. Um, now, there's a birthday in your household this week. Yeah, we have a slew of birthdays. Uh, no, we don't have a slew of birthdays. We have two <laughs> in don't. the autumn. We have two in the autumn. Yes. Simon, uh, on Tuesday, yes, Tuesday the 13th, turned 11. And then Bryden, our oldest, uh, will turn 13 in november yeah 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 so it's a it's haberman birthday rama i think yeah i think you were saying you have a slew because uh you know that jordan is this month and isaac Isaac is next month yeah it's simon and jordan this month you isaac and bryden next month that's right yeah 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 so it's very cool autumn's a good time for habermans to be born now, was Simon able to have any uh, friends over for a distance party, or is that? No, we just did. We just did a, a small family affair on Tuesday, yeah. and then at uh, at my mother and father in laws who have you've been? Have you been to their property? It's mm-hmm. beautiful. Yeah, my mother and father in law listener own um, a beautiful bed and breakfast on sprawling acreage in rural Western Pennsylvania, and it's just lovely. And so we'll have an outdoor, like a bonfire and an outdoor uh, birthday party gathering with just a handful of friends. Okay. Um, so that'll be on Friday. That'll be that's, great. That's what we're doing tomorrow for Jordan is we're doing three girls are coming over. So it's going to be small and we're going to do outside and, and we're going to do a fire pit. Uh, do you know what? I'm sure you share this with me. Um, how haunting is it? The Facebook memories thing that comes up um, on birthdays and other times um, six years ago today. And you look at that picture and you're like, I thought I took that picture last night. (laughs) 
No, it was 2014 <laughs> when my daughter was four or whatever, right? Well, it, but like I said, it both seems like it couldn't have been that long, but also, yeah, it could have been twice as long. Yeah. Guess what, guess what the Haber clan, the Beaver Falls Haber clan did on Saturday? I, I have no guess. Uh, wait, wait. No, no, no. I am going to guess. You drove to Mexico. Close. Elwood City. We went to the comic book store. First time ever. First time ever. Our maiden voyage to the comic book store, Christopher. And, uh, I and, and this, I was... isn't just any, this isn't just any comic book store. It's, it's like a vintage one, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. It, so it, there's a range. It, it tries to keep up with a bunch of new titles. And it also has a massive... Uh, catalog of of old stuff and um and so i i gave i gave each of my child children parameters and we could honestly christopher we could have spent four hours there it was so great it was so great so you walk in and it's one of those old-fashioned stores where the bell rings when you walk in mm. so that ushers you back into childhood in a certain way right and and the smell the wave of old text you know what I'm talking about, right? Old newspaper oh, yeah. print, and that washes across. Um, that, 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 that washes over you, maybe. Washes over you. Yep. And to the right, there were the new titles, and then to the left was Dollar Comics, Dollar Vintage Comics. Wow. Oh my gosh! Did you see the picture that I sent you? Did I send it to you? You I did feel like not. I sent it to you, like uh, on the Ottoman, just a spread. Of oh, classic you sent me that. With yeah, yeah. Behind it. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Christopher, out of as an almost an, a loving homage to our father and his brothers, the uncles, they got all Richie Rich comics, which is what Christopher, our father and his brothers, our uncles got when they would drive to the family cabin as 10 year olds in the 1970s. So it was just great. It was just great. I got some old, some old detective comics, some classic Batman, some classic Superman, um, some old spider, old amazing Spider-Man. So I'm taking my time. I'm savoring it. I'm trying not to plow through them, um, but I'm going through them. We had and we had designated comic book reading night last night. Um, Daphne got. <laughs> I can't even believe this exists, but it exists. She got uh, My Little Pony was Transformers gonna guess that. crossover. Okay, <laughs> I was not going to guess the Transformers part. Um, please explain this this universe oh. that that has both ponies oh. and transformers i i, I, I do ponies so. transform into robots no no it's like do transformers have cutie marks they team up uh it doesn't make sense to me it, <laughs> it, you mean you haven't read it frontwards and backwards and tried to figure out this I, I actually haven't read that one to her yet she wanted it and then the, she's been reading the uh, the mickey mouse comics that she got so yeah. Uh, so speaking of, of comic books, there was, uh, I remember back in the day, uh, boy, middle school, uh, I used to read the, the comics in the newspaper. Oh, love You it. know, uh, boy, I'm not, none of them are going to come to me, my favorites. But I remember there, there were always some weird dramatic ones. Uh, was there one that was a judge, judge something? Anyway, there's one called Mark Trail. <laughs> that where the art looked like a comic book and it was like a dramatic cartoon. And I happened to see somewhere this week that Mark trail received a makeover that this comic now looks like a comic and not like a dramatic, uh, comic book, which is in, in some ways that's reassuring that there are still daily comics at all. Yeah. I, I haven't looked at that. I see them in the Sunday paper that, that they have Sunday funnies, but you know, in the daily paper, I don't, I don't look for them, so I don't see them. Well, I'll say this. This is reassuring. Um, the charm, for example, of the Peanuts gang, like Charlie Brown, entirely it still remains. It still casts a spell over my children. Mm. Um, they love watching the specials, but they also love reading them. Mm. Um, we've got some vintage Charlie Brown volumes laying around, and they're well-read and dog-eared. Mm. Yeah. See, see, for Jordan, I, I know she goes in these stages where she's really into something and then she lays off it like a bad habit. So there, uh, 
there uh, was a time that she was really into Kelvin and Hobbes. We, we don't have a lot of Calvin and Hobbes books, but she was really into that for a while and hasn't touched it in years. Mm. Now, I've thought about getting her comic books before, but um, the frugality in me has kept me from doing that, especially since we have Amazon Prime. And there are certain comic books that you can get on Amazon Prime, but it just isn't the same. Like, no. being a Prime member, uh, she read this whole, like, thick Darth Vader one that yep. she loved. yep. Yeah. But but having an actual paper comic book that you're turning the pages on, it, it's 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 hard to quantify how much better that is than than uh, sliding. Oh no, it's not hard to quantify. Like I will quantify it precisely for you. Seventeen times better. <laughs> I will quantify it precisely. All right, so there 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 exist two Kirk Habermans. Oh, is is this visual? Are you gonna give me visuals on? I'm giving you visual quality I, I, podcasting. So listen, okay, so appreciate up, this visual. Up here is right. is Kirk Haberman reading a comic book. Down here is on an iPad. Is that is that pretty much what you're? No, there is there is frugal El Cheapo economic Haber, Haberman, uh, which which is a prominent part of of my personality. So he's got both hands about eye level. Yeah, yeah, and then there's nostalgic Haberman which is as I'm entering middle age and I just peer back through the mists at the, uh, the lovely sun dappled hills of my childhood, sentimental nostalgic Haberman is, is a powerful force as well. Right. And this is where they do battle because I've experienced precisely what you're talking about. I've read through all those Darth Vader ones that are on mm. Amazon, Amazon prime and Bryden's read through a lot of them. And, uh, and I too have felt like, ah, like sliding my finger across <laughs> the glass, the cold antiseptic glass is not the same as licking it and turning the page in anticipation to what three-dimensionally lies in front of me, right? So we go to the comic book store and Bryden goes straight, poof, straight to the Star Wars graphic novel section. And I'm like, inwardly, I'm like, okay, this is, he's gonna get something good. And he knows exactly the title that he's going for. And he pulls it out. And I'm like, and I and he, I recognize the title that he pulls out, and I can't remember now what it was. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that's good. That one's good. And I turn around and I look at it, and it says 1999. And I was like, and I, <laughs> I ask you, Christopher, who triumphed? Nostalgic <laughs> Haberman or Economic Haberman? Oh, I think Economic Haberman triumphed. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. So he's gonna read that one on the Kindle. Yeah. <laughs> Unless he wants to save up, but yeah. That's funny. <laughs> Christopher, what do you say we uh, move on to the gospel? Let's do it. So this Sunday is actually the feast day of St. Luke. Um, and so the reading comes from Luke 4. We're going to continue on <laughs> here in the podcast. We're just going to keep marching on through the book of Matthew. Uh, the tw because otherwise we would miss this uh, 20th Sunday after uh, Pentecost, this reading from Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are picking up right 
Jesus is in the temple. We're, we're not skipping any time. No time is passing. He doesn't go anywhere else. He's, he remains in the temple here in this uh, passage here. And we see, uh, so in The Tempest, Shakespeare writes, misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. There's a, a contemporary version of that saying that's, that says politics make for, makes for strange bedfellows. And that's certainly the case here. The fact that the Herodians and the Pharisees are teaming up to try to entrap Jesus in his words. And uh, see, there, there is a sense that they think that Jesus is not a man of, man of integrity, that he's simply a populist. Uh, and the, the thing about a populist is you're popular as long as you speak things that are pleasing to the people. And my favorite example of, of kind of illustration of, of populism, it's not that he's a populist, but Ferris Bueller and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he joins a parade and marches at the front of the parade as if he's leading the parade, when in fact, he's not. He just, in the middle of a parade, he's dancing and showing like his joy on his day off of school. Um, but he's in fact not leading that parade, but he's acting like it, right? And that's kind of a populist. Like a populist leader is only really popular. It's only like leading the people as long as he continues in their favor. And so what they're hoping to is to get him to say something because either way he answers it, um, the Herodians, of course, are cynical politicians that have essentially thrown in with the Romans acknowledging, okay, like we are, we're in a bad situation here, but we're going to make the best of it. So the Romans have their boot on our neck. And so we're going to make nice with them while still being kind of independent Israelis uh, on our own. And the Pharisees uh, can't publicly be that, oppositional to the Romans, because that's really bad for them. And in fact, we see uh, decades later, uh, the zealots rise up against the Romans and the Romans respond like the Romans do. They crushed, they crushed Israel and they crushed the temple, like literally crushed the temple and destroyed it because that's, that's just what the Romans do. I, you know, I mentioned in my sermon on Sunday, how um, the Philippian jailer, what is his first move when, when, he, when it seems that his job, uh, that he's failed at his job, that, that, the, that the jails are opened by this earthquake in the middle of the night? What's his first move? Uh, he's going to kill himself. himself. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. going to kill himself because he assumes that everyone escaped. And I assume that he's going to kill himself because whatever the Romans would do to him, like the authorities, would be much worse and like a, a quick death would be preferable. And we think of the crucifixion as this horrific um like the most horrific sort sort anyways that's just a point about how how gruesome the romans can be and and so they are like either way he answers this question the people are gonna either the people are gonna turn on him or he's gonna get in trouble with the romans they are not gonna love uh rejecting uh roman authority and so jesus is He's no, he's, I was gonna say, he's no fool. That's an understatement of the century. <laughs> Incred, incredibly wise. Like he knows exactly what they're doing. Like their, their hypocrisy is, is not as, as it's transparent. And, and so his answer is show me the coin. And of course, if you are a uh, religious Jew, the coin itself is an abomination. The coin itself says, it doesn't just have the head of Caesar. It says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. You know, there's this idea that the emperor is divine. And th this is, is insulting to the God of Israel and, and the God that we worship. And so the fact that Jesus doesn't have a coin, it, some, some commentators point out that uh, the interesting part is his poverty that he doesn't even have a day's wage. He doesn't even have one coin on him. Others point out, well, maybe it's just, he doesn't have this coin because it's an abomination 
to have this coin with the head of Caesar. And, and I'm, I, it's not clear to me which, which is in fact the case. Um, but, but he says, show me the coin, and someone brings him a coin. It's clear Jesus doesn't have one, whether it's because he's just simply poor or that, that um, the, the small wealth that, that they have amongst the disciples is, is in other, somehow in, in other currency. I'm not sure. And of course, he shows it to them and like, who's, who's on here? Caesar. And he says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, many of the commentators point out that this is not, in fact, Jesus teaching separation of church and state. That this is, in fact, Jesus condemning the whole, uh, the whole question. And in fact, talking about not just apostolic poverty, but, but uh, saying you cannot serve both God and money, that it, that it ties back to that teaching. And there are several commentators who are pretty confident in that, uh, that, uh, that, that this tax that, that uh, has been issued, because we also see other taxes that Jesus does not complain about. There's a temple tax that, that uh, in fact, they, they pay. That's, there's no complaining about that. So, of course, correct. The question is: is 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 this setting up separation of church and state? Uh, many commentators say no. I think uh, that's not what Jesus is doing here. But I think that is something that's worth talking about because we see Paul in the Book of Romans and elsewhere talk about submitting to the governing authorities because God has put them in place. And so I, I think that when we look at this, it's okay to talk about that, even acknowledging that this is not what Jesus is teaching. Uh, because, of course, like we submit to Jesus as Lord. We do not submit to Caesar as Lord. And while, we, while Paul wrote to uh, early Christian churches saying, submit to your governing authorities, God, they only exist because God has put them in place, uh, unjust as they may be. Uh, there is, of course, a limit to that. We, we see Peter, when he is freed from jail for preaching uh, the gospel of Jesus in the temple, they say, stop doing this. You know, it's, it's illegal. You can't do this and we're going to kill you. And, and Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. And, and of course, it would be a terrible thing uh, to, to say that uh, abolitionists and people on the Underground Railroad would have been somehow doing something immoral by going against the, the status quo and doing essentially illegal things by rescuing slaves and pushing for freedom of slavery. And the reason I'm really interested in this passage right now is because we, we live in America. We don't live in a place where uh, we have a Caesar who is considered divine and who we have to actually sacrifice to as, as a God. Of course, something that Jews nor, neither Jews nor Christians would do. So here's what I want to say, because so many people get so bent out of shape about partisan politics today. We have an election coming up in less than a month, and we get so convinced that one side or the other side is the answer for us. And so I, I, I want to speak a little bit to that. Wait, it's not? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and it's interesting how, how some people say we as Christians must compartmentalize our, our faith that that can't influence politics, which is ridiculous. Of course, we bring all of this biblical values that we find in, in scripture to the ballot box. Unfortunately, there isn't one party that checks off a totally Christian uh, agenda. And in fact, there are Christians on, on both sides of, of, of the aisle because they have a different vision for, for what has, for how to live out Christian values in society. And yet we as Christians, as Christians in America, especially as Anglicans, we pray for our elected leaders. And so uh, our, our diocese, in fact, is doing a prayer, 24-hour prayer vigil. And as, as a priest in the diocese, we've talked extensively about how to speak to people about this because the, some people are like, whoa, whoa, you can't mix religion and politics. What? Like, of course you can. Of course, like our politics are totally influenced by our religion, right? Like to say that we have to separate them is, is ridiculous. Um, we're not praying for a particular outcome or a particular party. 
We're praying for God's will to be done as, as we're taught to pray in the Lord's prayer. That's what we're praying for. And we're praying uh, whoever wins in any of these elections, governor, senator, house, uh, legislature, any of these things, whomever ends up being elected, we pray for them that, that they would, uh, that they would, be wise and discerning as leaders. And, and mm-hmm. we pray for them weekly in our liturgy that, that uh, even if they start office, not being a Christian, we pray that, that, that like godly values, because we believe that God's law is written on every heart. And so there is hope for someone who isn't a believer to at least know uh, morality because it's evident to, to everybody. And uh, some people choose to reject that. So, I just want to encourage each of you, yeah, go vote, but also pray consistently for those who are in authority, those who govern, uh, whether those people are powerful, uh, you know, as, as governors and presidents and mayors, but also pray for, for the people in you know, middle management, the pe- pray for each and every one of them. And uh, as a diocese, we've gathered every Thursday, t- tonight, uh, we're going to gather, we're recording this on a Thursday, uh, and we're praying... Uh, each Thursday for a different area. Next th- Thursday, we're going to pray for those in government not, uh, that that um, that they would govern wisely and in 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 a godly way. Well said, Christopher. I um this passage has always um, unsettled me uh, because of its uses and abuses throughout history. Yes. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and so I just, I just want to say this, uh, all of scripture is God breathed and useful for doctrine and counsel. There are passages that exhort the faithful to, um, active movement for justice in this world. And then there are passages that remind, uh, the faithful that God's kingdom is not of this world. Mm. This seems to be perhaps one of the latter. And um, I think any tradition that, that, that falls off either side of the horse probably doesn't have the whole picture. Um, but this is a reminder, I think, um, that, that uh, God places, a, I mean, Luther makes the point that um, the civil magistrates are God-ordained. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean that like Hitler and Stalin and Mao and, uh, and uh, um, what's his name? Hugo in Venezuela, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, that, that, um, that we're to be- The, la- the late the Hugo late, Chavez. Thank God, Hugo Chavez. Um, that, these, that these are people that we submit to we, um, quietly. I think we would disagree with other quietist uh, Christian traditions, um, but, it's a, but it's a reminder that civil magistrates are ordained of God. Um, and, uh, and that uh, our, our trust ultimately is in um, is in uh, civil magistrates to perform civil duties, and um, when we ask our civil magistrates to perform um, to be uh, to perform spiritual acts, um, they're going to inevitably disappoint us. And mm. I think that's where a lot of the 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 anger and disappointment and disillusionment of 2020 is coming in. Um, yeah, I don't have any. I don't have anything more than that. Uh, this, I. I I, I told you before the show that I read this <laughs> passage and I see landmines everywhere. I think you're, I think prayer is probably the right exhortation as we read this. And we ought to pray for our civil leaders, um, submit when and when it's when when and where it's appropriate. Um, that's all. I think it's a good concise <laughs> summary, Kirk. Um, and and I just used a lot of words to essentially say what you just said to to like pray consistently for those in authority and and we believe that god has placed them in authority um and and you usually we need to respect that there are times where we have to use our wisdom uh to push back against those injustices um perpetrated by those in authority uh similar to to when that happens in the church right like Mm -hmm. god has especially placed people in the church in authority and the church um is hierarchical and people and priests and, and bishops do have authority that doesn't mean that they never misuse it and that there isn't a time to push back against it um mm-hmm. how, 
because there, there, there is something to that authority. So there, there's wisdom. Uh, so we pray for them. We pray for our, our, our priests and, and our bishops. Um, and uh, we pray for, for wisdom to, to know kind of when, you know, so, so I wouldn't say, I wouldn't push quietism, but I would say uh, be discerning when, when you uh, decide to push back against uh, authorities in your life. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any final thoughts, Christopher, on this, um, on this in, interesting and thorny teaching of our Lord? No, because I know that we have a loaded theolo- theology segment. So let's move on to that. Let's do our theology segment. Christopher, on the church's calendar is, is, is quite an impressive holy bouquet of, uh, of saints. On Sunday, we have um, uh, the Feast of St. Luke, Evangelist and Companion of Paul. Um, and and ori- originally, we had talked about um, just honoring and marking St. Luke, um, but, but you and I sort of were thinking maybe that, that it actually might be better to look at this entire week um, in which we've had a remarkable uh, slew of saints. Yeah. And, uh, and um, this is actually appropriate. It's almost a crescendo heading to November 1st um, uh, when we have All Saints Day um, as we reach the end, near, nearing the end of the church year. Um, and the church, almost in its wisdom, kind of, uh, we, we have this, well, a crescendo of saints. And so let us, let's take a moment, Christopher, to mark a holy men and holy women and honor them, and, and may, they, may they serve as inspiration for our own lives as we still tread the mortal path. <laughs> On Tuesday, Christopher, we had the, the Feast of Edward the Confessor, and you and I twice had opportunities to enter into Westminster Abbey, where the remains of Edward the Confessor, the shrine of Edward the Confessor, um, are and I, you looked this up, Christopher. I, I did. Not, I did not look. I did not look it up. You this remember? Is from memory. This is from memory. <laughs> so it might hey. probably is more now. I could not stomach the eighteen pounds, which would be thirty to forty dollars, depending upon the exchange rate, um, entrance fee. And so I never, I never got to go in. Um, but Edward the Confessor uh, was um, a cult around him, and a cult. I don't mean like. Uh, <laughs> uh, bad teachings. I mean, a, uh, a fervent uh, practice of, of prayer and devotion um, around his relics rose very quickly after his death. And he had um, the ability, uh, interestingly enough, of healing sight. And so you'll see in rude screens anywhere where, where Saint Edward, there's a church of St. Edward the Confessor or art um, about him, um, of him healing uh, blind people. And uh, if you've ever been to London, please go to Westminster Abbey. And Christopher, next time I go, I will go. I will go. I will go. And God That's willing, perhaps I will be able to visit the shrine of Edward the Confessor. Um, so I've never been in the shrine, Christopher, but, but a good friend of you and I um, told me the story who was able to go in. He, he uh, played the collar card, right? He said, oh, I'm actually uh, Anglican clergy. Uh, am I able to go in? And, and he was given a private tour. And his, um, his and all other um, bodies that are in the shrine of Edward the Confessor, Christopher, um, behind the choir, um, they're all facing east intentionally so that on the last day, mm. they will all rise up out of their tombs and mm. their first sight will see, be the risen savior in the sky. Mm. And, um, and he, when he shared that story with me, sitting, sitting with ancient bones of ancient saints, he said that was, um, that was quite, quite a holy moment. So 
that's that's kind of I want to exhort all of you. Please do what I didn't do. <laughs> Go into Westminster Abbey. It's beautiful, and it is it is a holy place in Christendom and in Anglican Christian Christianity in particular. Um, uh, tomorrow, Christopher is a feast of the Oxford Martyrs. Uh, um, well, you, and uh, you're skipping over Teresa of Avila. All right, go ahead. Do <laughs> Teresa of Avila. I don't know a lot about her. She's, <laughs> she's one of only two women declared a doctor of the church. Yes. Uh, and so she has two uh, kind of primary works, The Way of Perfection and The Interior Castle. I've, I've read neither of them. Uh, and she was a, a close a friend of, of St. John of the Cross. Um, and uh, she's, she's a Christian mystic uh, who, who talks about, um, well, in, in her prayer life, uh, she, she had, I think, these visions that it greatly impacted her work. I don't have a lot to say about her, Kirk, but I think she's worth mentioning Yeah, <laughs> um, for, for, for a lot of reasons. And do you, since I don't know a lot about her, I'll just leave it at that. Do you have, do you have a list? I, I have a category in my mind. It's a list of authors that I feel guilty about not reading <clears throat> that I know I should. And as a result, I hold irrational. Um, uh, I, I'm irrationally irritated when people gush about them. <laughs> I, feel le- I feel left out. And St. Teresa of Avila is on that list. And so I should not have skipped over her. Um, people that I respect and that I love and that I read, uh, she, she, her mystic writings uh, are, are, are gushed over. Um, and so shame on, shame on me for, for not having read her. I need to read her. And, it, and it's a good thing that we have her on our calendar uh, to at least, you know, it's the thing is the calendar can become very crowded and, and then it can be hard to read up on many of these people. But like the fact that she's on there, it's, it's, it's reason enough to kind of look into her a little bit afterward on recording. Yeah. So I would just say this um, listener, I have her in my to read list and maybe, maybe think about putting her on, on yours. She has been edifying to centuries yeah. of Christians who are looking for kind of devotional um, devotional clergy to read. Um, so she's not, she's, not, she's not as much theological as devotional, I gather. But again, I, I I'm, shouldn't get out over my skis and say more. Uh, on Friday, uh, October 16th, we have Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridney, Ridley, um, bishops and martyrs in the Church of England. And they were martyred in 1555. And uh, and uh, Thomas Cranmer was put on trial with them, um, but he was as he was the the, the grand prize for Queen Mary and the um, the Roman Catholic inquisitors that were sent to try kind of the, the the reforming bishops after Edward VI's death and the seeming failure, as we find out later, um, because Mary didn't have any Catholic children and her. Protestant younger sister Elizabeth became queen. It was merely a setback in the English Reformation. Um, but as it seemed as if the Reformation had failed in England and um, Roman Catholicism is, is being reinstated as the official state church, um, these reforming bishops are all put on trial and given an opportunity to, to confess their errors and, and, and be, be absolved and, and die a good death. Um, we have three Oxford martyrs, uh, Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas, Ridley, Nicholas Ridley, and Hugh Latimer, that, that do not. And Thomas Cranmer's story is for another day, and I, so I, I shouldn't say anything about that. But, but Ridley and Latimer, I just want to say a few things about them. Um, their story is, is really quite stirring. Uh, uh, Nicholas Ridby, Ridley was a powerful man in the Church of England. He had been a bishop, the Bishop of London, which in the Church of England is one of the coveted bishoprics. And Hugh Latimer was the Bishop of Worcester, another coveted um, bishop, bishopric. Latimer, by this point, was, was, was quite elderly, um, and, and he really wasn't able to say much at trial. He gave mostly a writ, written statement. Nicholas Ridley, however, was, was young and had, and had much to say. And, and, and so I just want to kind of paint a little bit of picture uh, of this. And if you go to Oxford to this day, in the road, 
on Oxford's Broad Street is a, uh, is a really a, a grand um, memorial marking uh, the site of their execution. And in fact, uh, um, archaeologists, modern archaeologists have discovered a part of the stake at which they were burned and some bits of charred bone, um, which would have once been part of the town ditch. So um, there's the legend goes that as the flames were kindled, Hugh Latimer said to Nicholas Ridley, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. And we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Mm. And that is the pious legend. It is recorded in Fox's um, Book of the Martyrs. Martyrs. Is the book? Yeah, Book of uh, Martyrs. It sounds right. What's that? Was, I, I, that sounds right. Wasn't that like one of like the two books besides the Bible that almost every American had? Yes. So it was, it, was like, it, was, it was like that and Pilgrim's Progress in the Bible. Yeah, yeah. And then later in the West, it was an oddly, it was that, Pilgrim's Progress, the Bible, and Ulysses S. Grant's memoirs. <laughs> it's like interesting, like those were the ones. Anyhow, anyhow, uh, Latimer, like I said, was about 70 when he went to the stake. Um, he was a, a famous preacher and a chaplain um, at the court of Edward VI. So um, the queen or the king's chaplains, those are really coveted positions in the English church. She was an influential preacher and theologian. Uh, Nicholas Ridley uh, was younger. Um, he had been an outspoken supporter of the attempt to make Lady Jane Grey um, the queen after Edward VI's death. And so he was really on, on the list <laughs> for Queen Mary. Um, when Mary was kind of uh, getting together kind of a list of people to, to kind of um, put on trial. Um, so he's tried for treason. And uh, in 1554 and 1555, they're all, they all share a cell in the Tower of London, along with Archbishop Cranmer. Um, they're moved to Oxford, where they were to debate in public with Roman Catholic theologians. Um, Ridley was considered to have given a brilliant defense. Um, and, uh, and let me find my notes here. Okay, so Ridley went to the stake um, in, in a smart black preaching gown, um, but Latimer, who in, in a, a brilliant publicity coup, wore a shabby old um, garment, just something shabby, nothing ecclesiastical, which he took off just before um, being tied to the stake to reveal a shroud. So really wearing the garments of martyrdom. Uh, Nicholas Ridley kissed the stake. Both men knelt down and prayed. Um, then a 15 minute sermon was given by some Roman Catholic cleric urging them to repent. After which they were chained to the stake. A bag of gunpowder was hung around each man's neck. The, uh, the, 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 the pile uh, of branches was lit. As the fire took hold, Hugh Latimer is an old man um, basically coughed and was uh, died, died, died of asphyxiation, um, basically without pain. Um, but Ridley uh, um, was in quite, quite bad agony, writhed in agony and repeatedly cried out, oh, Lord have mercy upon me for I cannot burn. Thomas Cramner saw all of this. He was made to watch mm. and he would go to his own death the following year. And that, Christopher, is a story for another day. <laughs> um, it's a good one it's a good one one of my favorite uh, which brings us to saturday christopher um ignatius of antioch who has another great story of his martyrdom would you like to tell us about his martyrdom i'll do my best and i'll let you fill it in uh, unfortunately we we talked about doing this right before we started recording so i'm essentially kind of going from memory here uh, ignatius uh, of antioch okay so i don't remember all these Dates. I've got something in front of me. Uh, Martin in, in the year 115, he, there are two things that are really, really interesting about him. One is his calm certainty on his way to his martyrdom. And for some reason, I recall perhaps like he could have somehow without apostatizing he could have perhaps gotten out of his martyrdom there, there would have been something he could have done but instead uh, he traveled with these uh, 10 soldiers i think in the custody of 10 soldiers and um as he traveled to rome to be martyred 
he wrote these letters, uh, which give us this really amazing historical picture of that time. And, and so it's, it's this wealth of knowledge of the early church. Um, and it's interesting, the collect for this day or the prayer, uh, almighty God, we praise thy name for thy bishop and martyr Ignatius of Antioch, who offered himself as grain to be ground by the teeth of wild beasts that he might be present unto thee, the pure bread of sacrifice, mm-hmm. uh, which alludes to, I believe his method of death, which I think was by, by wild beasts, probably in the Colosseum or in some, some similar thing, uh, in, in these gladiatorial, uh, just horrific, uh, you know, events that that uh, were entertainment in in Rome, in decadent Rome. Um, so there are seven authentic letters uh, that that he wrote, and uh, what we see in them is is like I said, a snapshot of of the early church. And and with this happening in in the year one fifteen, and him being the just him being the second bishop of Antioch. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the just the beginning generations of the church. And what I think this, this really attests to, uh, and what he attests to actually in his letters, is the importance. Kirk, we've talked before about the importance of connection to the church. The yeah. church is not, is not an accident, that it's by design. That's right. um, and, and some people kind of treat it as this kind of later thing that developed. And what's really important is really for us, uh, apart from the church, to have our relationship with God. And I think I even talked about this last week, that, like, of course, we are to have a relationship with God. Um, and a personal one where, where we go to him in prayer. And, that's, and it's great that, the, that we don't have to have that mediated by uh, the church. However, um, the, the church is by design, and God has ordained it, um, and it's very important. And I think Anglicans are very generous about uh, saying, uh, you know, what the church is, that it's, it's, it's where the, the word is, is proclaimed and the sacraments duly administered, um, which is... Uh, Interesting that that's the official doctrine, considering um, what Ignatius talks about, like the words that he uses. Uh, he says, flee from schism as a source of mischief. You should all follow the bishop as Jesus mm-hmm. Christ did the father. Follow too the presbytery, which is uh, pastors, the, mm-hmm. the priests, as you would the apostles and respect the deacons as you would God's law. So we see in the year 115, uh, evidence of this threefold uh, ministry of, of bishop, priest, and deacon, uh, and and he's calling people to to obey the authority of of the church, and 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 that he says where the bishop is present, there let the congregation gather, just as where Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church, and of course, Catholic means you know universal, like the one church, you know, right, and um, and so. This, if if you wonder, like why, you know, why do those Anglicans? Why do they have priests and why do they have, you know, bishops? Um, we could see evidence of this not as an accident, but very early in the church as part of the design um, of the apostles. Yeah, and I would say this as well about Ignatius of Antioch. Um, there's a phrase of his that um, has captured and haunted my soul, um, and that is uh, he refers to. Holy Communion as the medicine of immortality. Mm. And I just love that. And that's in, that's in his letter to the Ephesians. By the way, if we're, if we're, if we're wondering how far back does Ignatius of Antioch go, um, he hmm. was a student of John the Apostle. Is that something? <laughs> yeah. So again, Christopher, your theme, the church is not an accident, um, mm. but, but it is that which Jesus came and built and the Holy Spirit sustained and grew. So he's um, literally the second generation. Yeah, he's second generation, right? Yeah. Right. Um, also, and we, and I, we have seven letters that he wrote. <laughs> we have them today. Yeah. It's amazing. It's great. Yeah. Um, I would say this also about Ignatius of Antioch. I, I, I was a little scandalized by this, Christopher, in college. As a good kind of low-church evangelical Methodist boy, um, reading some of these letters in kind of a, I forget which, uh, what church history survey course at Grove City, um, but it became clear that um, already Ignatius of Antioch, right? So we're talking late first century at the, at the latest early second century, right? At the latest 110 AD mm-hmm. um, is already teaching real presence mm. of Jesus' body and his blood in the Eucharist, right? Um, so yeah, I already shared with you, he, he wrote um, 
and we break one bread, which is the medicine of immortality and the antidote against death, mm. enabling us to live forever in Christ Jesus. So that's sort of tacitly, but he says more explicitly elsewhere, he says, I have no, this is in his letter to the Romans. He says, I have no taste for the food that perishes nor for the pleasure of this life, right? Mm. Like a, an echo of John's, uh, of John's account, right? right? Student of John, of John's account of our Lord's encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria, right? The Samaritan woman. Mm. I want the bread of God, which is the flesh of Christ, mm. who was the seed of David. And for, I des- for drink, I desire his blood, which is love that cannot be destroyed. Um, so, I, I mean, so that, that, just, that, that just rings of having sat at John's feet or hearing John preach, <laughs> right? Who mm-hmm. himself was there, <laughs> uh, you know, hours after Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's, it's remarkable. It's so beautiful. Um, uh, I, one more. In his letter to the Smyrnians, He says, um, they abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not admit that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ, the flesh which suffered for our sins and which the Father in his graciousness raised from the dead. So I'm I'm sorry to start banging on on (laughs) about real presence. It's like I'm Johnny OneNote when we start doing that. But (laughs) so that's Justin Martyr. Anything about yeah. Justin Martyr before we move on to St. Luke? Well, as, as you were talking about real presence and, and stuff, uh, it, it kind of reminds me of, of, of the implicit biblicism that, that I kind of brought uh, with, carried with me. Uh, and so I remember the first time that, uh, so at the ministration of communion, uh, the bread can be presented a couple of different ways, uh, depending on the right we're using. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so some can get quite wordy, <laughs> the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, preserve your body and soul to everlasting life. Or you can say, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Or quite simply, the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. And I remember when I first heard that, uh, years ago, I, I kind of struggled with that. I'm like, ah, you know, like that doesn't sound right. I'm not recognizing that as coming from John chapter six, right? <laughs> um, where, where Jesus is, is saying that, you know, uh, your father's ate manna from heaven in the desert. And Jesus is tying that to himself. He says, uh, for the bread of God is he who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then he says, I am the bread of life. Um, right. So it's like, it, it's 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 um a it's a uh it's it's pulling from John chapter six to say the body of Christ the bread of heaven which I think is a wonderful and succinct thing because when you're serving communion to many 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 people it can get really wordy to say, take this remembrance that Christ died for you and feed in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving the body of Christ which is given for you preserve your body to everlasting life take this remembrance that Christ died for you and feed him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving where it's quite simple to say the body of Christ, the bread of heaven. Well, what you just said, uh, take and eat and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving, is really threading, I think, a deft, not, this is a discussion for another time, <laughs> but that is the Elizabethan synthesis of the 1559 yeah. Book of Common Prayer, Yes, which, which deftly acknowledges that um, we do, we, there is, the Eucharist is both a matter of the heart and it is a physical encounter with our Lord, right? Yes. And there's no reason to pit one against the other. Um, and I think it very deftly um, kind of gives a head nod to both. Well, and, and so that's said at, at sort of the presentation. Um, yes. And in, in inviting people forward. And then when it's, so, so um, after um, the, the prayer of humble access, Immediately after that, it says, um, the gifts of God for the people of God, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Which I always love. Uh, that is, that is it's, almost always a great pastoral moment to me as I'm receiving that. 
And it's and like to, this is kind of this podcast is we're like, oh, here's this thing that we didn't think about talking about, but let's mention it a little bit, but not in too, too much detail. And so we're going to continue that with. Um, I, I may have talked about this before, but but um, and and I this isn't an original thought by me. It's it's uh, the beautiful words, the gifts of God for the people of God is something saying something really special about what Holy Communion is. Um, that that. that uh, they've just been preceded these words have just been preceded by the, the prayer of humble access where we acknowledge that we are not worthy and yet uh it is the character of god to always have mercy um there are traditions that warn people so much to 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 search themselves and 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 where the the, the warnings before communion are so severe that no sane person would ever come forward and then there's some some churches that are liturgically sloppy and act as, and maybe, maybe even will give it to non-believers. Right. Uh, and, and I think in the middle there is this idea that this is the gifts of God for the people of God. So if you're a person of God and you've confessed your sins and been absolved of them and the Lord has separated you from your sin, as far as the East is from the West, and he remembers it no more, uh, of course, like come be strengthened by his body and his blood. And I'll, I'll, I've maybe used this example before, but I, I had a, uh, someone I know, I, he was an adjunct professor at the seminary, but he shared the story about an aunt of his. She was a part of a church that had communion once a year. And wow. she never took communion on that one time a year. Cause on that day, or maybe it was it, maybe if they would have had it every Sunday, she wouldn't have felt worthy, but she only had an opportunity to kind of inspect herself and say, Oh, I'm not worthy. Um, and so she never, ever, was able to take communion because she never felt she was worthy. Uh, I think she could have been comforted by those words. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. This is a gift for you, child of God, not mm -hmm. something that you need to, uh, this is a good thing that we should take frequently. And um, with, with, with uh, acknowledging that, of course, we give the exhortation uh, multiple times a year um, so that people do examine themselves. So, with with that um, with that thing we didn't expect to talk uh, about, let's <laughs> let's move on to Saint Luke the Evangelist. Yeah. So Sunday is the feast of uh, Saint Luke, evangelist and companion of Saint Paul. He of the authors of the four gospel is uniquely the only Greek. Um, we read that he's a physician, so he would have been his education um, would have been kind of marked him as, as certainly probably in a different situation than John um, or, or, or Mark. Mark, I believe, do we kind of traditionally treat as sort of Peter's gospel, like Mark is sort of Peter's scribe? Um, and, uh, and I like to think of Luke as Mary's gospel. Mm. I, I know that's, that, I say that with a twinkle in my eye. I, I know that, um, that Luke is his own man <laughs> and saw his own things. Um, but Luke has a particular eye for a woman's perspective. Mm -hmm. um, he um, checks in early on with Mary and Elizabeth. The first two chapters are largely their stories, the mother of John the Baptist and the mother of our Lord. Um, women receive special attention in Luke's gospel. Think about um, uh, in, in Luke, I forget what chapter it is. Is it 23? Um, he talks about the women of Jerusalem. I'm following Jesus to the cross. He's the only gospel to talk about that. Um, he's also well, earlier on, we find out that he has like women who are like provide financially for him. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, he's also the only gospel um, that has, uh, he has several parables um, uh, about um, people that are down and out. Uh, the lost sheep, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son are famously only Lucan. They're not found in Matthew or Mark. Um, so those are kind of Christopher uh, Lucan marks that I've always appreciated. Um, what are other kind of Lucan accents or, or aspects or characteristics of his, his ministry, his writing? Anything about Luke? Well, uh, I would just tag on to your point that, that uh, it's, has an eye for women uh, and in the presence of women that, that the other gospel writers um, lack. And so I, you know, each person is, is their own, but his perspective uh, speaks a lot to 
to women and, and how active they were in, in Christ's ministry and, and also their perspective. Like we see, we, we don't see um, the Magnificat elsewhere, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and and part, part of that is, is that, um, you know, Matthew, Mark, and John were offering their own account, right? Where, mm-hmm. where Luke went and, and interviewed eyewitnesses and, and was seeking kind of to do something a little bit um, different since like he had to, he couldn't tell an orderly uh, kind of story of, of the life of Christ apart from interviewing people. And because of that, we get to see things that we don't see elsewhere. We get to see, you know, like you said, the Annunciation. We get to see, um, we get to see, uh, we, we wouldn't know much about the birth of Jesus, the circumstances without right. Luke. Right. And I shared, I've shared, I think on this podcast, my pet theory, this is like, have you ever been in a conversation? This is a great Twitter conversation. Like what extra biblical theory is your, your favorite? And mine is that Luke spent considerable time in Ephesus and we know he went through Ephesus and we know that John, who our Lord uh, commanded to care for his mother at the foot of the cross, that John was in Ephesus probably with Mary. And I just think the, the first several chapters are, are really colored by that interview. How else could he have written things like, and Mary pondered all these things in her heart. We read that twice. We read that after the birth narrative, and then after um, Jesus is lost in the temple, uh, we, uh, what's that, when he's 12 years old, right? And for three days, they travel, they leave Jerusalem, and then they have to go back, and, and he says, um, did you not know that I'd be in my father's house or something to that effect? And again, we read, and Mary pondered these things in her heart. I mean, how else would Luke have known that except that he talked to her? So this was obviously something important to him that he took the time to talk to female eyewitnesses, which Christopher, you have pointed out in the past, um, female eyewitnesses weren't, wouldn't even stand in court, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it, th- there's, there's certainly something to, um, to that. Uh, Let's let's point out that he not only wrote Luke, but he also wrote the Book of Acts. You may yes. have already said you may have already said this, but uh, and of course he is a participant in some of the uh, accounts of Acts, where you, where you see the the third person turn to uh, first person plural we. You see, kind of we enter the the language of the Book of Acts, where um, it's clear that Luke is along on the journey at these points, and and so that's that's very interesting, uh, and, and I think the fact that Luke wasn't an eyewitness of these events, uh, at least in the gospel of Luke, uh, is just an interesting thing to ponder as we consider what the Bible is. It's interesting how the Quran, what is it? What is the claim central claim of the Quran? It's that it was dictated right. um, to Muhammad, to the prophet. Uh, and, and that's not, we don't have a book that was dictated. We believe that the, the Bible is God breathed. Uh, and uh, we believe it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but the Bible is is completely as human authors, including one author that that was not an eyewitness of, uh, uh, but but in fact interviewed eyewitnesses, and um, that that's the book of of Luke. Um, and so the interesting thing about these eyewitness accounts, both the multiple eyewitness accounts that come together for the Gospel of Luke, and the eyewitness accounts of Matthew, Mark, and John is that we get a lot of personality in them and, yes. and kind of, um, we, so, so it's, it's, it's like implicit in, in what they notice. And that's um, why we have four different gospels, four different accounts um, of, of the work of Jesus. And, uh, and of course, see, I think everyone's favorite is probably John. Um, <laughs> uh, and part of that is because, you know, John assumed the other three gospels and um, sought to do something a little bit different in, in his narrative. So, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for, for uh, St. Luke's work and um, for um, the, 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 the things that his gospel contains that the other gospels have. We talked about Simeon uh, the other day mm-hmm. yes, uh, in a yes. recent podcast. That, uh, account, that's only found in the gospel of Luke. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful that we have um, these things that are unique to, to Luke. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so I would, uh, I would say um, over this weekend um, – if you have a moment, um, praise God and um, give a prayer of thanks for those saints that have come before mm. who, have, um, who have won their reward and um, pray for sustenance that we too can walk the same path. Shall we end in prayer? Let's. The Lord be with you. 
and with your spirit. Let us pray. Almighty God, you called your servant Luke to be an evangelist and physician of the soul. Grant that by the wholesome medicine of the doctrine he taught, all the diseases of our souls may be healed through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. O God, the source of all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works, give to your servants that peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts may be set to obey your commandments, and that we, being defended from the fear of our enemies, may pass our time in rest and quietness through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Kirk, we'll talk again next week. Yeah, next week, brother. Thank you.